Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 1. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. In today's episode, we'll be entering Margaret Atwood's sordid, whiskey-spilt world of streetwise private detectives, world-weary cops, sleazy office furniture and murderous women. This is no world of subjugated women crying out, blessed be the fruit. No, this is something quite different and speaks volumes of Atwood's flexibility as a poet and writer. So let's take a listen, shall we? May I present you with In Love with Raymond Chandler by Margaret Atwood, read by the fabulous Lucy Freeman. In Love with Raymond Chandler by Margaret Atwood. An affair with Raymond Chandler, what a joy. Not because of the mangled bodies and the marinated cops and hints of eccentric sex, but because of his interest in furniture. He knew that furniture could breathe, could feel, not as we do, but in a way more muffled, like the word upholstery, with its overtones of mustiness and dust its bouquet of sunlight on aging cloth or of scuffed leather on the backs and seats of sleazy office chairs. I think of his sofas, stuffed to roundness, satin-covered, pale blue like the eyes of his cold, blonde, unbodied, murderous women, beating very slowly like the hearts of hibernating crocodiles, of his chase lounges with their malicious pillows. He knew about front lawns, too and greenhouses, and the interiors of cars. This is how our love affair would go. We would meet at a hotel or a motel. Whether expensive or cheap, it wouldn't matter. We would enter the room, lock the door, and begin to explore the furniture, fingering the curtains, running our hands along the spurious gilt frames of the pictures, over the real marble or the chipped enamel of the luxurious or tacky washroom sink, Inhaling the odor of the carpets, old cigarette smoke and spilled gin and fast, meaningless sex, or else the rich, abstract scent of the oval transparent soaps imported from England. It wouldn't matter to us. What would matter would be our response to the furniture and the furniture's response to us. Only after we had sniffed, fingered, rubbed, rolled on and absorbed the furniture of the room would we fall into each other's arms and onto the bed. King size? Peach-colored? Creaky? Narrow? Four-posted? Pioneer quilted? Lime green chenille covered? Ready at last to do the same things to each other.
Born in Canada's capital of Ottawa, Ontario, in November 1939, Margaret Atwood grew up as a teenager in the largely conservative post-World War II period of the 1950s. Fueled by the rise of middle-class affluence and the desire for stability and security, people of that era were influenced into living homogenised lives that were largely conformist, conservative and orientated towards traditional family values. The 1950s also witnessed significant growth in the popularity of pulp fiction crime stories that played on the gendered stereotypes of that time. The pulp fiction of writers of that period, like Raymond Chandler, pioneered a new vision of women as murderous, lethal and sexually assertive femme fatales. These strong-willed female characters stood out as women who could not be trusted in a world of conservative values and rigid gender stereotypes. Nevertheless, the literary creation of these femme fatales stood in contrast to the passive and subservient image of femininity being pumped out to the masses at the time. To a young woman soon to embark on a stunning writing career as an extraordinary feminist voice in our world, one could imagine that the presence of these strong women in Chandler's writing might have been very attractive to Atwood. In fact, one could argue that perhaps these femme fatales served as a catalyst that would inspire Atwood's own strong voice as a female writer. Of course, this is pure speculation on my behalf, but it's an interesting idea, and it's an even more interesting way into reading this poem. Atwood herself was a writer very much at the forefront of the second wave feminist movement of the 1960s and beyond. Indeed, she was deeply influenced by the feminist hopes, criticisms and aspirations of this period, having grown up herself through the conservative 1950s and seeing firsthand the many issues that women faced in the world. In this poem, Atwood turns Chandler's femme fatale into both the narrator of the story and the empowered hero of the scene. So on one hand, this poem could very much be interpreted as a feminist work, Yet this poem is also something much more than just a potential feminist work of literature. In my mind, it is also an unadulterated ode to the wonder and power of language itself. Language, description, words, sounds and details. It is a poem that lifts language into the realm of being better and more enjoyable than sex itself. And what a message that is for us today's sex-obsessed world. Now, before unpacking the poem itself, a word or two about Raymond Chandler is warranted. Chandler was one of the greatest private detective fiction writers of all time. As famous for his gritty descriptions of Depression-era Los Angeles, as he is for his lyric interplay of hard-boiled criminal investigation with literary imagery. Raymond Chandler was born in Chicago on July 23, 1888. He lived with his mother from the age 8 to 23 in London and Europe. After bumming around Paris, he went to work for the British Civil Service and started publishing poetry and newspaper articles. 
1932, he decided to embark upon a career as a Pulp Fiction writer, focusing on detective stories. As author John Banville noted, it is easy to forget what a revolution Chandler wrought by turning Pulp Fiction into literature. He was not just a superb crime writer, he was a superb writer who happened to write crime novels. Raymond Chandler's writing was heavily influenced by his British upbringing, his classical education, and his early attempt at making a career as a poet and literary journalist. Chandler's poetic, highbrow literary chops are interlaced with lowbrow slang, crime jargon, and Depression-era wisecracks to create a text in which the sophisticated cultural references appear like colourful flowers rising above broken bottles and cigarette butts in an empty lot. One of the most easily imitated aspects of Chandler's style is his frequent use of simile. Chandler loaded his stories with similes such as these. I was as hollow and empty as the spaces between stars. It comes from the long goodbye. Or this one, the plants filled the place, a forest of them, with nasty, meaty leaves and stalks like the newly washed fingers of dead men. That's from The Big Sleep. And also from The Big Sleep. A few locks of dry, white hair clung to his scalp, like wild flowers fighting for life on a bare rock. Here you can start to see another reason, therefore, why Atwood, who herself writes so poetically, was perhaps attracted to this man's writing. His writing is just so damn sexy. The body of his work as a pulp fiction writer in some strange way becomes incarnated by her, Atwood, into lines of poetry. In other words, Atwood turns his body of work into an actual physical body full of senses wanting to be caressed and pampered to life. His pulpy elixir of words are like a cheap cologne that draws Atwood's senses in and then inspires her imagination to run wild. In many ways, Atwood's poem pays respect to Chandler himself who believed readers didn't want non-stop action or complicated plots in their fiction. No, he thought that people wanted to feel something. Chandler writes, the things people really cared about were the creation of emotion through dialogue and description. It was through the detailed description of clothing, bodies, mannerisms, as well as a thorough account of the furniture, architectural style and decor that Chandler captured what one writer labelled as that lonely, slightly squalid, noir feeling. Added to all this, Chandler's stories drip with irony and cynicism. His tough guys talk big but are self-deprecating. And the most ironic, cynical and self-deprecating of all his tough guys is Philip Marlowe. Marlowe is crime fiction's quintessential hard-boiled hero. Yet one of his most interesting and appealing characteristics is his vulnerability. He can get over a physical beating taken in the line of duty, but the damage inflicted on his soul is irreparable, writes John Banville. He is also the quintessential loner. He lives in anonymous rented accommodation and seems to have no possessions other than a coffee pot, a chess set and a nondescript car. He has no family, no friends that we know of, and the women he falls for are lethal. Writing in the conservative 1950s, a time filled with rising consumerism, it's not hard to see why a strong feminist like Atwood 
only a teenager at the time, may have been drawn to a male so at war with the dominant male stereotypes of the time. So I want to finish by talking about the fact that this poem always puts a smile on my face every time I read it. And the reason it does is simple. The poem manages to elevate language itself beyond the all-powerful realm of sex. And that's an amazing feat, and it's so refreshing. We live in a sex-saturated and obsessed world where images rule, but not here. Here, simple words are king. Listen to some of the lines, for instance, when the speaker explains that she is in love with the writer because of his interest in furniture. She goes on. He knew that furniture could breathe, could feel, not as we do, but in a way more muffled, like the word upholstery, with its overtones of mustiness and dust, its bouquet of sunlight on ageing cloth or of scuffed leather on the backs and seats of sleazy office chairs. My God, that is such lush, gorgeous language. Listen to the long assonance in the vowel sounds in the word upholstery, and the soft pregnant P sound made by the consonants. It's like the word has become a naked body on parade before its lover. Who writes like that? Indeed, this section is full of long assonant vowel sounds, and the length of the line itself slows down the scene. It's a long line, and it gives a sense of gravitas and sexiness to the whole situation. Atwood doesn't stop there. The speaker goes on to describe how Chandler knew about front lawns too, and greenhouses, and the interior of cars. Then later she doubles down on the intimate details, making the act of description into an act of intimacy that is kind of uncomfortable to read, yet it makes you smile. It's so rare to have sexual description be so free of moral baggage. She writes, This is how our love affair would go. We would meet at a hotel or motel. Whether expensive or cheap, it wouldn't matter. We would enter the room, lock the door, begin to explore the furniture, fingering the curtains, running our hands along the spurious gilt frames of the pictures, over the real marble, the chipped enamel of the luxurious or tacky washroom sink, inhaling the odour of the carpets, old cigarette smoke and spilled gin and fast meaningless sex, or else the rich abstract scent of the oval transparent soaps imported from England. Need I say more? I'm exhausted just reciting that out, and I'm happy to leave the rest of the analysis in this poem to your imagination. So with that said, I'll be signing off. But before I leave, I just want to remind our listeners that if you're after more poetry resources, feel free to visit our website, and we want to thank you for the ongoing support of the Lit Poetry Project. A fantastic video of this poem is also available on our YouTube channel. To support our work, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. We'll finish by hearing the poem one more time, read by the fabulous Lucy Freeman. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
In Love with Raymond Chandler by Margaret Atwood. An affair with Raymond Chandler, what a joy. Not because of the mangled bodies and the marinated cops and hints of eccentric sex, but because of his interest in furniture. He knew that furniture could breathe, could feel, not as we do, but in a way more muffled, like the word upholstery, with its overtones of mustiness and dust, its bouquet of sunlight on aging cloth or of scuffed leather on the backs and seats of sleazy office chairs. I think of his sofas, stuffed to roundness, satin-covered, pale blue like the eyes of his cold, blonde, unbodied, murderous women, beating very slowly, like the hearts of hibernating crocodiles. Of his chase lounges with their malicious pillows. He knew about front lawns, too, and greenhouses, and the interiors of cars. This is how our love affair would go. We would meet at a hotel or a motel. Whether expensive or cheap, it wouldn't matter. We would enter the room, lock the door, and begin to explore the furniture. Fingering the curtains, running our hands along the spurious gilt frames of the pictures, over the real marble or the chipped enamel of the luxurious or tacky washroom sink, inhaling the odor of the carpets, old cigarette smoke and spilled gin and fast, meaningless sex, or else the rich, abstract scent of the oval transparent soaps imported from England. It wouldn't matter to us. What would matter would be our response to the furniture and the furniture's response to us. Only after we had sniffed, fingered, rubbed, rolled on, and absorbed the furniture of the room would we fall into each other's arms and onto the bed. King size? Peach-colored? Creaky? Narrow? Four-posted? Pioneer quilted? Lime green chenille covered? Ready at last to do the same things to each other. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.